You are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. Amen. So tonight is our third installment of our Beatitudes series. We've been studying this beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount, and our approach has probably been different than maybe you've heard before. I know it's been uh, different for me to look at these statements of Jesus as progression of spiritual growth and reaching for him, becoming more like Jesus. This idea of blessed are all these groups of people are building blocks one upon the other. And we've been using uh, Charles Spurgeon's book, a very old book, as our primary resource. And he uses this illustration of a ladder. Ta-da! And there is our excellent slide that Pastor T designed for us. And what we've quickly realized is that the Beatitudes are full of paradoxes, seemingly impossible statements to us and our human, finite way of thinking. And Jesus tells us through the introduction of this Sermon on the Mount, through the Beatitudes, what it looks like, what it even feels like to become more like him. And so again, let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10, and I'm going to read in the NIV this time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so becoming more like Jesus, to be clear, is a journey that will take us our lifetime. None of us will ever arrive. None of us will not be in this process that Jesus is making very clear to us in Matthew 5. None of us here tonight, not even the elders among us, have completed this list in the mind of God because all of us are to embody all of these things that Jesus is teaching us here. And so tonight we have a ladder. This is our illustration based on Charles Spurgeon's presentation. And Pastor Tom is very nervous. Forrest is very nervous because I'm going to try to get on this ladder for a second. And I don't know why Tom is nervous because I'm not a very coordinated person and I'm accident prone and he knows this. And so here we go for the sake of the illustration to make sure I'm being clear and you are understanding what I am trying, my feeble attempts to make this clear. Here we go. Are you ready? In Jesus name. Our first step on the ladder towards becoming like Jesus and reaching for him, blessed are the poor in spirit. This idea that in our approach to Jesus, in our attempt to become like him, to follow him more closely, begins with us becoming poor in spirit. And that is simply recognizing 
our spiritual need that will always be there. Even after we've experienced the fullness of salvation, we understand that no matter how good we are or how bad we are, we will always need God's grace in our lives. And so we told you that a lot of people believe that this second beatitude of blessed are those who mourn, some believe is actually just a continuation of the first because when we realize that we're poor in spirit, this leads us to mourning Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, who are saddened by their sin. It's one thing to understand that you've done wrong, and it's something else to be sorry and to actually repent for that wrongdoing. Because like any good parent, God doesn't just put us in time out. He doesn't just say, okay, I'm glad you're sorry. You can go play now. But God, because he's a good parent to us, the Bible says, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And so we talked about how that word comfort doesn't just mean that Jesus rubs our back on the playground and says, good try, I'm glad you're sorry, now go play. But Jesus, through his comforting, that word actually means to admonish to instruct. It's more than just encouragement, although God certainly does that for us, but God sets us on the right path. We don't have to guess what he wants from us. He tells us, he instructs us, and we are blessed to go through that process of true repentance because God has promised to help us. And then this is as far as we're going, in case you're worried. I know I am. Blessed are the meek. And so I stand here to make sure we understand I can't get here without first being poor in spirit, without first mourning and repenting genuinely for my sin, because to be meek, according to the Bible, is to be humble, is to be gentle in spirit. And I cannot do that if I do not have a repentant heart. Charles Spurgeon made one of my favorite statements that we've made so far to say that the self-righteous are never meek. They're never gentle towards other people because they're full of themselves. And yet we understand that when we're poor in spirit, when we've mourned for our sin, there should be a gentleness and a humility in us because we are aware of the grace that we have needed and the grace that God continues to extend in our lives. And so to be meek is to be more like Jesus. For the sake of our illustration, it is to be closer to Jesus. Did not Jesus say, I am meek and lowly in heart? Jesus came as a humble man. Think about it. He was God manifested in the flesh, the lion of Judah in human form. And yet he came just like Isaiah described him in Isaiah 53. That he was a tender plant, a root out of dry ground. There was nothing beautiful. There was nothing attractive about him physically as a person. That he was despised and rejected of men. Jesus was meek. He was lowly in heart. And we get to become like him through our meekness. Amen.
And so we need God's grace. We need God's grace as we continue to pursue what he's teaching us in the Beatitudes. And I thought today about this progression and wanted to give you an example of someone in the Bible that you can kind of identify with who exemplifies all that Jesus is teaching us here. And I could think of none better than the mighty apostle Paul. Think about what you and I know about him. In the first half of Acts, he is a terrorist to the church. Literally a madman. Self-righteous to the point of justifying murder. In fact, one of the first times we see Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul, he is holding the coat of Stephen. A mighty man of God and leader of the church. And he watches as Stephen is stoned to death for being a Christian. Gasping for breath saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And we see Saul watching and participating in this horrendous, horrendous thing. And then yet you get to the end of the book of Acts and Paul is suddenly the superstar of the church. He goes from being its number one enemy to its number one resource, its missionary, the authority on the scripture, the ultimate writer of the scriptures in the New Testament. And we know from Paul's own admission that it was a journey and process that took him very far from where he started to where he ended up and who he was in Christ. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That doesn't sound like the same guy who persecuted Christians. Ephesians 3.8, he says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. Paul went from hating Christians to looking down upon them to the point that he wanted to extinguish them from the planet to saying, I am the least of all of them. Because the closer he got to Jesus, the more he realized he needed God's grace. You see, we are poor. Like Paul, we are the chief of sinners if we're in this process. And then we mourn like Paul, oh wretched man or woman that I am. And then we become meek like Paul. I'm the least of all the saints. I should be gentle and humble in my heart because I understand I need God just as much as everyone else that I come in contact with. And so now let's look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I want to begin by setting the stage for this particular beatitude tonight with another quote by Oswald Chambers. I'm a fan, if you can't tell. Oswald says this, The motive of a disciple is to be well-pleasing to God. The true blessedness of the saint is in determinedly making and keeping God first. Herein lies the disproportion between Jesus Christ's principles and all other moral teaching. Jesus bases everything on God-realization, while others base everything on self-realization. That to follow Jesus, Brother Chambers is telling us, is to become selfless. 
that we're no longer motivated by our selfish desire, that those words hunger and thirst paint a vivid picture for us of the extent to which we should desire God and the things that he loves and the things that he cares about. Let's be real for a moment here. There is nothing quite as motivating as hunger and thirst. We see this in very small children. I love my nephew Asher. He has hanger problems just like his Aunt Kristen. He cannot be stopped when he's hungry and thirsty, and I identify with that. You've been on a road trip where, for whatever reason, there's nowhere to stop and you're starving. We've all had this experience during COVID, right? We just need a place that's open. Or with you've got a bunch of people with you. We just need a place to eat. Why is this so hard? It becomes the center of everybody's focus, and people get very angry. They get very locked up because it's all they can think about. It makes me think of my days in youth ministry where after the youth rally, sometimes there's nowhere to eat. And so you go to a BP and you buy a bunch of junk food and pretend like that's a meal because you're hungry. Because there's nothing else to do and everybody has to eat. I think about midwinters with the stacks of pizza boxes at the after event. And when you haven't eaten since lunch and it's what, one o'clock in the morning, you realize that greasy pizza just isn't that bad. I'll eat it, I guess, because I'm just hungry. Even people like me who love food and are motivated by food and plan meals well in advance to keep myself motivated and going on certain days, it ministers to me. And I don't hide it. Pastor Tom knows food is one of my love languages. And so if you love me, feed me, buy me coffee. That makes me very happy. That ministers to me in a special way. But growing up, I went to bed really hungry one time. And it was all my fault. I'm going to tell you something about me that maybe you don't know. When I was a teenager, my vice was my mouth. I was a smart aleck. I was really good at it, too. And I could hear my father say often these days, Ah, you reap what you sow, Chris. Because I certainly am. But one particular dinner, I said too much. I was not happy with what the brunette had prepared for whatever reason. And I shot my mouth off one too many times. And so my dad let me know that I could go to my room for the rest of the evening. And that I would not be given a crumb the rest of the day. To which I thought, yeah, right. He's not that cruel. There's no way. So I went up to my room. And sure enough, by the end of the night, I was begging my mom for a cracker to which I could hear my dad say not a crumb and I learned my lesson I never did that again because there's something about hunger there's something about being thirsty that absolutely dominates our thinking it gives us great clarity of focus. Nothing else really matters or takes precedent when we get really, really hungry or when our kids are really, really thirsty. We're desperate. We just have got to fix 
this. And so once again, I think that this, like being poor in spirit, is hard for us to identify with as Americans specifically, because we aren't hungry or thirsty unless we choose to be, most of us. And that's why fasting is very difficult, because eating and drinking are the most basic of human experiences. In fact, if you're not hungry, if you're not thirsty, it means that something's wrong with you. It's a symptom of sickness, right? How's their appetite? Are you drinking enough water? And if the answer is no, a physician will tell you that's, that's problematic. And so I think the challenge for us in application of what Jesus is teaching here is asking ourselves if we don't desire righteousness the way Jesus is describing here, we have to ask ourselves why that is. If I'm not hungry for more of God, no matter how long I've been in the church, if I'm still not thirsty for the things of God, it's a desire that dominates my thinking and motivates me every day. If I no longer feel that way, why is that? The answer is very clear, and Jesus gave it to us right at the beginning of his teaching that maybe we're not poor in spirit anymore. We've lived for God long enough that somehow we've become self-righteous or we feel like we've gained our ground. We have some kind of confidence about where we stand with God. And so it would be hard to be hungry if we're not poor in spirit. It would be hard to be thirsty for more of God if I'm not grieved by my sin anymore. If I'm not mourning for the things that separate me from God and that I see clearly God is not pleased by, I'm not going to be hungry. And I'm certainly not going to be hungry for the things of God if I'm not meek and gentle because I've become self-righteous and hard. I've become proud of my spirituality. I'm not going to experience those hunger pains that Jesus is talking about here But David certainly understood this because he said, as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In studying this today, it's incredible to me that Jesus didn't teach just on these ideas of being hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but Jesus actually identifies himself as the source of the fulfillment of these spiritual desires. In John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John chapter 4, with the woman at the well, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, this physical water here at this well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never 
thirst again. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life in Jesus. We have everything we need to satisfy our spiritual hunger and thirst in order to be more like him. And this is one of the things that I love most about the Lord is that he doesn't just tell us what we need to do, but he himself walks us through that process and he himself provides for those needs for us. He's the bread of life. We don't have to hunger anymore. He is the living water. We don't have to be thirsty anymore. And so this beatitude, I think, is more difficult than the others, but it has a promise unlike the rest of them. Jesus said that if you are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you would be filled. End of story. That this assurance is not given to the poor in spirit, to the meek, not even to the peacemakers. Jesus says those who desire righteousness will absolutely be filled no matter what, every time. And I'm not sure that tonight I can fully comprehend the promise of God right there. Because hunger and thirst have a unique intensity to them in our physical bodies. It influences our behavior in a way that few things do. And Jesus is saying right here that if you reach for me, that you will absolutely be satisfied by me, no one else, nothing else. And Jesus says we are blessed to be hungry and to be thirsty for righteousness. It's another paradox here in the Beatitudes because you and I see hunger and thirst as a negative thing because it represents a need. We don't want to be needy. We don't want to be hungry and thirsty. And yet Jesus is saying, but if you are for righteousness, for me, you are blessed in that need because I will satisfy it myself. We read verses in John 4 and John 7 where Jesus alludes to the fact that he is the source of what we long for and what we hunger for in this way. And I think the context of Jesus' statements that we read before are very, very significant for our understanding that he talks about living water to an adulterous woman at a well drawing water. He makes that statement about the bread of life after feeding 5,000 men plus women and children with 12 baskets full of lots of carry out for everybody. That is when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And I think it's important for us to understand that even though Jesus understands our physical needs in the context of those statements, he was making an assertion to us to realize that we have needs that only he can meet. And he is concerned with any type of need that you and I have, not just our physical need, but our spiritual need, and that you and I will be filled. It is a divine promise. It is guaranteed by Jesus. And so quickly, as I come to a conclusion tonight before our app time, let us consider what we are to crave here according to Jesus. That word righteousness is, is one of those words you only hear in a church context. So let us be clear on what it means to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying we should be hungry for and we should thirst for. It's very simple in two parts. Here's how righteousness is defined for us. 
Righteousness is right standing with God and right living on earth. It's not one or the other, it's both. And this is where we get in trouble. The Pharisees were in right standing with God in terms of keeping all the rules. But they were not living right on earth according to Jesus. Because in keeping the rules, they forgot about caring for other people. And he had a problem with that. The Ten Commandments, you see, were about living right on the earth. Jesus came and he added to those. And he said, I want you to do more than just obey the rules. I want you to have a relationship with me. Jesus wants to be much more than just your God. I hope you know that. Jesus wants a relationship with you. He wants to be your friend. And so if we're not hungry or thirsty for righteousness, I would ask us to consider what makes us full. What are we filling ourselves with if it's not the Lord? If we're not hungry, then why is that so? Why don't I crave alone time with God? Oswald Chambers made this statement. There is a difference between devotion to principles and devotion to a person. Psalm 16 verses 5 through 11 say this. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I was thinking about um, one of my favorite authors and a book that he wrote called The Screwtape Letters. Has anybody read that by C.S. Lewis? It's a fascinating story where C.S. Lewis writes in the voice of a senior devil named Screwtape. And he is training a, his nephew, who will be soon a devil. And he teaches him things about humanity and how to tempt us, how to trip us up. And he also gives him insight into God and how he feels towards humanity to try to help him become a really good devil. Isn't that an interesting premise? And he warns Wormwood in the story about the unfair advantage that God has against the devils as they do their dark work. That all those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade or like foam on the seashore out at sea. Out in his sea, there is pleasure, Screwtape tells Wormwood. And more pleasure. God makes no secret of it at his right hand. Our pleasures forever more you see the enemy knows that but he wants us to believe that serving God is drudgery that it is 
arduous, that it is empty, that it is even impossible to please God. Satan would love to convince you and I that total surrender to God will bring hardship to us and will isolate us from anything that is enjoyable or good in this life. But David, as we read in Psalm 16, knew better, for he was a man after God's own heart. He speaks of joy and pleasures forevermore. He talks about that companionship with the Lord. David says, because he's with me, I have total stability in my life. I will never be moved because the Lord is with me. And so tonight, as we go to our app time, I want to give you three reasons why we are blessed when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Number one, we have the right focus. It's a singular focus that will not be satisfied by anything other than the Lord Jesus. Number two, we're blessed because we become motivated by the eternal. Therefore, we are not easily distracted by things that do not last. And that's going to help us serve God a lot better and a lot easier. And then number three, our need, our hunger, our thirst, although it's always present, will be met. Not just here on earth, but in eternity that we get to spend with Jesus. That we are promised to be filled now and in the world to come. And so if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus said, we are blessed and we will be filled. And so tonight for app time, I want you to consider this question with someone around you. How has Jesus already fulfilled this promise in your life that you would be filled when you pursue the things of God? All right, so I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Let's talk about it, and we'll come back together. Today I noticed for the first time that however you divide up the commandments, I don't know if they're seven or eight or nine. Okay, I don't know. I'm not Oswald Chambers or Charles Spurgeon, but however you divide up the Beatitudes, um, there's fewer than the commandments, than the Ten Commandments, whether you believe there's seven or eight or nine. And I think that that's significant. I think that that's interesting because I think the message there is that We can approach God not just through a list of rule keeping, but that we see through this illustration of a a ladder of this progress of this spiritual growth within us that Jesus is saying, I want to have a relationship with you. I want there to be a closeness between you and I that you don't just 
feel bad for what you've done wrong, but that you let me help you change your life around, do things differently, become more like me, become a gentler person, a meeker person, than, and that you will desire more of me in this way because I think that's why Jesus taught in the order that he did. He could have taught on the, on the Ten Commandments, and there are those that would argue and say that he did away with them, but actually he added to them. He made them way more personal. He made them harder. Because for Jesus, it's not just about doing what is right. It's not just about being sorry for what is wrong. But it's about being in a relationship with him where we see ourselves grow to become like him. That we're not meant to stay in that poor in spirit state. We're not meant to stay in a perpetual state of mourning and repentance all the time. But there should be growth and progress in us where we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, that we become humble like Jesus is humble, that we extend grace to others, and that through that process we want God more. We hunger and thirst for Him more with the blessed assurance, the total guarantee that those desires will be filled by Jesus Himself. And so I think it would be good for us to take a moment after we've reflected on how God has already fulfilled that promise in our life to say, God, show me where I need to stay hungry and thirsty for righteousness in my life. That I don't want to just be in right standing with you, but I want to be in right standing with the way I'm living my life here on earth because Jesus is saying both matter to him. And he can show us the balance. He can show us how to please him in that way. Lord, we love you. And we thank you, God, for your word that just challenges us, that helps us. Sometimes it's difficult, God, to just process and imagine your great love and interest in us. That even though we are poor in spirit, God, sometimes we, we mourn deeply because we understand just how deficient we are when we get in your presence. And yet, God, you want to take us by the hand and say, I want you to do more than just obey rules and come to church. I don't want to just be your God that you fear and you obey, but I want to be in a relationship with you in such a way that you look forward to being with me, that you want me to help you, that you desire to be more like me. And God, that is what we want. You understand our weakness. You understand our wrong thinking. And so God, through your word, will you feed the deepest parts of us and help us, help us to know the truth because the truth makes us free and it makes us free to serve you the way that you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, 
Google Play or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.